This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by me. Hi, I'm Tim, the creator and facilitator of the New Evangelicals and host of the New Evangelicals podcast. Original, I know. We are a Jesus-centered and inclusive community that holds space for the folks marginalized by the evangelical church, advocates for accountability in the church, and we help people like you leave that cold, dark, and damp basement of evangelical fundamentalism behind to explore the rooms of the Christian tradition together. You can check out our podcast to hear from all kinds of amazing guests who are way smarter than me, and even a few episodes where I get to rant to our podcast producer about how dangerous Christian nationalism is. Ah, good times. Check us out anywhere you get your podcasts or slide into our DMs on Instagram at The New Evangelicals. Thanks. Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is not church. With John and Nat Turney. All right, all right, all right. Welcome back to the podcast. My name is Nat. I'm with my brother, John, as always. Say, yo, 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 what up, John? Yo, 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 what up, John? See, all, all you're doing is proving that you will you will obey. I do appreciate I'm, that. I'm, like, I'm just <laughs> like one of those dogs in those little dog shows. I'll do whatever the hell you tell me to do. Really? Okay. Yeah. I'm gonna, I, you, you realize that all this means is I'm going to keep like pushing the envelope and see how much ridiculous shit just, I can make you say. As long as you, get, <laughs> long as you give me a good like treat, which is whiskey, by the way, you need to understand that. The treat it has be, to be whiskey. There will be treats. Oh, okay. Um, that's, okay. All I, that's all I ask for. All right. Well, welcome back to the podcast anyway. This is, uh, this is the podcast that we have called This Is Not Church because if it was church, you'd have left by now. And then we wouldn't have been able to pass the plate and uh, you couldn't have sewn <laughs> into our ministry. And we want that for you very much. Um, this is a... This is a pretty momentous day for us, man. We have it really somebody is. show that it, it really, really is. is. And I'm not blowing smoke. I will blow smoke nope. later. This isn't yeah. the blowing smoke portion. But we're really excited to have our guest with us today. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Peter Enns is here. Let me read you a little bit about him in case you don't already know. If you don't know, what rock have you been living under? But if you need some more information, I'm going to read to you from his Wikipedia page because I always find that to be enlightening. And then you can find that if it's all true. <laughs> he, he, he just made an oh shit face. Oh, oof, okay. are you going to read the whole thing? I won't, I won't tell. All right, let's read our one. I won't read the whole thing. Uh, all right, let's just, let's just, oh, no, no, just a, just a little intro. Okay. Part. I won't even tell him your middle name. That's just, uh, or, or how old you are. But you, so <laughs> Pete is an uh, American biblical scholar and theologian, so far true. Um, he's written widely on hermeneutics, Christianity and science, historicity of the Bible, and Old Testament interpretation. Outside of his academic works, ends as a contributor to HuffPost and Pathios and probably a whole lot more stuff. He has also worked with Francis Collins, the BioLogos Foundation. His book, Inspiration and Incarnation, challenged conservative slash mainstream evangelical methods of biblical interpretation. His book, The Evolution of Adam, questions the belief that Adam was a historical figure. This all seems kind of reductive. Um, <laughs> he also wrote The Bible Tells Me So, Why Defending Scripture Has Made Us Unable to Read It, and The Sin of Certainty, Why God Desires Our Trust More Than Our Correct Beliefs, and the most recent book, which is about to be released, Curveball, which we are all very, very excited about. I could say more, but why not when I could just introduce Peter to you and say, hey, welcome to the show, man. Thanks, appreciate it. <laughs> Was all of that like completely like, I mean, it seemed all true, but so also just sort of update that thing though, because I, I wrote <laughs> nothing against the Huff Post. I wrote one or two or three things for them. Uh, it's been ten years, I think. Yeah, it just sound like you're like a correspondent for yeah, Huff Post, like I did this daily or something. From <laughs> yeah. the channel, you know, and yeah. Also, curveball. What's today? What day are we recording this? Today is the thirteenth. It came out February. last Tuesday. It I, did yes. come out. It's been out. Wow. Okay. Days, yeah. 
Yeah, that's right. Because we intended to have you on right right before. So well, cool, good cool. job so doing your research. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> uh, this, this, I, I feel like this is going well, John. Uh, I just I feel like well, it started <laughs> off by me being fifteen minutes late, which you're too kind to uh, to say here. Oh, uh, we would never. That's that's. Oh, come on. No, that's um, for for uh, for a man of your towering intellect. Yeah, I can, I can disrespect people. You're right. Yeah, I can. Disrespect <laughs> no, that's good. If, if, if it helps at all, uh, we interpreted none of that as disrespect. Okay, that's, I'm glad. attributed it to a guy who's probably very busy, although you were apparently just watching Netflix. So. I was watching <laughs> Netflix, yes. I was. <laughs> but I was, what I was were you really, watching? I, yeah, well, I'm not sure you want to out him like that. I don't know. Well, I, was, well, I, for, I don't even know. Um, I think it's called The Sins of the Mother or something like that. It's oh, about okay. Oh, okay. Yep, yep. some yep, Mormon woman who I think probably killed her kids, but I haven't gotten that far into it yet. So, oh, okay. Some of my Mormon friends, everything I know about Mormonism, I've learned from Hulu and Netflix, and I'm assuming it's all accurate. <laughs> this is what they all do. Same. They just kill Same. each other. I just, yeah. everything I learned about Mormonism is from the musical The Book of Mormon. Is yeah, that, is that, I'm sure that's that's probably not a yeah. good place to start either. But that's where I started. South Park in general, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, I saw that. Uh, I saw that little documentary that we showed that we were showed in uh, in uh, junior high uh, youth group. Remember that little sort of half animated, this weird thing about it was a very very bad um, evangelical. I, I don't remember this. It was propaganda about the Mormon Church. So. Oh yeah, well, that's right. Yeah. Anyway, it, it was, was there's, that was there's my, no propaganda in evangelicalism, yeah. right? No, 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 no it's all it's, all, it's, all, yeah. it's all truth. It's all. So we, uh, I, I do have to say, and anytime I have somebody on the show who's played a huge part in in my own journey, I I, I like to make sure they know that. Um, and so for for me, the sin of certainty was a watershed event. It was a big book for me. And and it's one I keep on my bookshelf, and I go back to periodically. And matter of fact, in my own book that's coming out in a couple months, uh, I did quote you a couple times from that book. That was a big deal, you know that that unsticking myself from the need to have all these correct beliefs and allowing myself some freedom to uh, to sort of venture out into a bigger, more you know, more wonder filled world was that ah, was huge, man. So thank you for that. I appreciate. No, it. I, I appreciate that, John. How about you? What's the thing about me you love the most? <laughs> <laughs> I've had a bad day. Uh, I need some affirmation. Okay, he, for he me, just, uh, your, punk, your punctuality. Being, don't you have to answer that? I'm, I was just. <laughs> no, actually, uh, I, I actually have an answer to that. So for me, as I. Uh, so I left, I left faith completely at around 1988, 89. I, I, I stepped away. I was like, it's all bullshit. I don't want to do this anymore. And about seven years ago, I stepped back into some kind of religious connection, faith or whatever you want to call it. And I knew I couldn't step back into what I had left. So I, I started listening to podcasts and one of the first podcasts I listened to was the Bible for normal people. Oh, really? So the Bible for normal people has been for me, I don't even know how to explain it. I mean, it it was a launching pad for other, other podcasts I listened to, but the Bible for normal people is definitely in my, in, in my top three podcasts, I would say for sure. Not only just your, your guys' banter back and forth uh, between you and Jared. I mean, I, but I absolutely love your guys' dry humor. And I know that uh, because we've had Jared on the podcast. So, and I know that some people don't get it. Some people, they, they absolutely don't miss, they completely miss the sarcasm, the dry humor. So I think one of the questions we asked Jared was the whole, 
you know, the only, the only God ordained uh, podcast. Uh, did you ever actually get like legitimate pushback from that from anybody? And he's like, yeah, actually we did. I was like, like how dare you? People actually took that serious. I mean, it's like, it's such a, uh, there's like 10% of the population that has no sense of humor. I'm, I'm, <laughs> they, they don't have to think it's funny. They don't have to agree with the humor, but to not understand that that's clearly not serious. You know, I mean, yeah. we get these things like, you know, I really enjoy the content of your podcast. It's very good. But do you really think you're the only God ordained podcast on the internet? And I was like, how arrogant. Exactly. <laughs> Don't you think there are other God ordained podcasts? Like, no, none of them are God ordained. That's sort of the point. We're just having a little <laughs> here. But. <laughs> but some don't understand it, and people do have different senses of humor. But right, yeah. it just gets to the point. I wouldn't even answer it anymore. It's like, okay, you're not going to understand it. Yeah. So, well, at this right. point, engaging someone like that might just be pointless, right? It's like <laughs> probably, you're miss, yeah. yeah, maybe yeah. not. But honestly, I, 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 I love your guys's outtakes. I mean. Keep doing that, please, because the, the most- oh, you haven't seen the real out the real outtakes would cost you about a thousand dollars a month. The real outtakes, the real outtakes are like really interesting between me and Jared. But anyway, so those will never see the light of day. Let's just say that. That's too bad. That's too bad. Well, there's, there has to be enough mutually assured destruction there to keep Jared at bay as well. I would imagine. I mean, there's, oh, there's yeah. stuff. Here. Yeah, he's a golden here. boy. Tell me, I'll tell you that much right now. He's, he's got real problems, Jared. So, you know. Well, he wouldn't even hire you as his assistant. So what's, what's going on with that? I mean, he's <laughs> oh, like, you yeah. can't afford me. I'm like, okay, whatever. But the, uh, <laughs> right. we'll work. I need that. I need that. We'll work for whiskey sign though. I can start holding yes, up during yes, podcast, yes, John. Because yes. yeah, I, I didn't know you're a whiskey. What's your, what's your whiskey of choice? Are you kind of a bourbon guy? You like scotch? You know, I'm I'm more of a scotch person, and I um. I, I learned that a few years ago from uh, friends of mine who spent a lot of time in the UK basically saying there's no American bourbon. There's no bourbon that can match good scotches. And I didn't believe them. But the thing is that it whiskey will keep me up at night mm-hmm. and scotch doesn't. And Ooh, the okay. way it's been explained to me is because of how it's distilled, they take more of the impurities out, blah, blah, blah. Like, I really don't care. I don't, I don't care about the chemistry of it all, but... Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I like Glenfiddich. I like McAllen's, you know, that's that's a pretty standard stuff, you know. Um, it's just a scotch isn't cheap. Whiskey's cheaper than scotch. Well, you know, you well, the, you can certainly spend a crap ton on bourbon, but the... Uh, you can. Um, it's interesting, though, because of, you know... And we don't, we don't need to get onto a whiskey podcast. All that would be fun, John. Um, <laughs> it would. Yes, it would. You get you get kind of spoiled in the Scotch world with a lot of high age statements because a twelve yeah. year old Scotch is not that is not remotely uncommon, right? Um, a twelve year old Bourbon's hard to come by, right? Without right. paying a ton of money for and it. Sometimes you can overage Bourbon; it gets over oaked and gets weird. But yeah. um, but John, I was at a store in uh, I was at a Total Wine store in Austin, I think it was, maybe Houston. Doesn't matter. They had a uh, thirty-five or a forty-year-old McAllen. Um, oh, how was much? Like, that thirty-five grand. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I said that's why tw- a twelve years is my limit. 
Yeah, I'm like, boys. you know what? I can get a really nice 12 year Glenfiddich for under 100 bucks. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Way under 100 here. I mean, life, life is good. <laughs> I rent sell for 50 something bucks here. But yeah. So, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and the thing is, you know, I, I stopped drinking bourbon for a couple of years. And then I was just, you know, I was out with uh, at a friend's house or something and had a little bit of bourbon. And um, what struck me was, I th- it might have been Maker's Mark or something like that. Or, or maybe it was Knob Creek. I, no, it was, it was the, the Woodford Reserve, uh, okay, yeah, which I like. I always liked that a lot. It's like, like this is good stuff. It was way too sweet. Yeah, it's That's way sweet. That they realize, oh my, this is really sweet stuff. And maybe it's the sugar content that keeps you awake at night too. I don't know what it is. Maybe sure, it's all that, it's all that corn, you know, kind of yeah. <laughs> messing with your biology. But yeah, all right. Now that we've had, this is great. See, we can talk about anything. We talk about whiskey. We Let's can. talk about um, we talk about obscure- the we're going to talk about obscure punk bands from the 80s. Yeah. Um, no, sure not really. That doesn't have my speed. We can talk okay. about 70s music. I can talk all day about that. Oh, man. I'm old. So I yeah. recently, you know, you, you get that friend, right? Who says that thing. It's like, so if you're, you're, you're stranded on a deserted island and you can only take one album with you, what album would you take? And I'm like, as a musician, you can't ask me that question. No, plus nobody has up. albums anymore. Right. So it's like, he's like, okay, fine. I'll I would just you. take my phone with me and whatever. <laughs> right. <laughs> so he, he, he narrowed it down to what decade? And I was like, yeah, so decade is fine. I can, I can live in the 70s. Yeah. I mean, actually, I really do think like 65, I might give 1980, 81 a nod just because I'm generous, but it's pretty much that 15 year period for me. And it's because that's when I grew up. I mean, this is, you know, we all know how this works. And Popular 80s music doesn't do much for me. And, and I think back in the 70s, you actually had to have talent. Yeah, there, it's, it's, you have to be able to sing harmony without auto-tuning and play instruments and write good songs. So, you know. Nothing nothing quite like seeing uh, the Eagles when they're four-part harmonies and they're dueling guitar solos and they're... Exactly right. They're, they're amazing. Ex- yeah. Exemplary songwriting. Go for, yeah, yeah, I love right. Big Eagles fan, but... That's awesome. So we, we like the Eagles, not the Philadelphia Eagles. Right. That, oh, that, <laughs> we were talking about that before we even got they off. Can, they can get banned. Yeah. Um, I, was happy, <laughs> I was happy to see them get sent home. I have, to, on. I have to be careful what I say because I live in Eagles country. I shop in Eagles country and I work in Eagles country. And they already know how I feel. So I have to <laughs> show my, my, my uh, maturity and yes. my godliness by not pointing out the fact that I'm thrilled. That watch <laughs> the way that they do. So, um, well, it's nice of you to commiserate with them. And well, my fear this year, guys, not to go on about this. My fear was that the Phillies would win the World Series and the Eagles would win the Super Bowl. Yeah, like, and it almost happened. It did. It did. I mean, they got close, which is like, yeah. listen, close is not perfect, but those two teams had really good seasons. They really they, did they had good seasons, and they 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 got very far and. And I think in the Phillies case, they just simply clearly lost to a better team. The, the Astros were probably, they were the best team in the American League. And oh, the Phillies down, were not yeah. the best team in the National League. They were just hot. Yeah, they yeah. were. They hit, but, they hit their stride at the right time, for sure. But I think the Eagles, on, uh, I mean, I picked them to win 27-24 before the game started. That's, I thought that, I thought they were going to have a close game. I don't think they were going to be scoring into the 30s. I thought the defenses are too good, but they did it anyway. Yeah, I was surprised that uh, that Kansas City came out after the half and just yes. did what they did and I know, just dominated. I, was, I, was, was, I thought that might be done. 
but they 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 won. They they did yeah. played well. Yeah. Big props to the uh, to the Chiefs and old Patrick Mahomes there. Yeah. But, hey, uh, let's 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 uh, let's talk about this book. Yeah, this let's talk about that, me. That, Come that, on, back to the yeah. right topic. Come on. What's it old? What's it old? I don't remember where the quote comes from, but there's the guy talking and he's telling the stories like, okay, well, enough about me. What do you think about me? Yeah, no. (laughs) (laughs) But actually, I remember that line from MASH. That's a line that Alan Alda says on MASH. uh, Well, enough about me. Let's talk about you. What do you think of me so far? So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I love, weirdly enough, I just rewatched MASH again, not too long ago. Oh, I need to do that. This year, front to back, just start to finish. It, it holds up. There's you know a couple episodes things. it is. It's like it was like ten years, I think, right? The, the, yeah, it's so. it's a lot. Yeah. Um, it's gonna be two, three hundred episodes, maybe. I, I will say this, I will admit um that I chickened out and didn't watch the finale because I remember the first time I watched it, yeah. It it psychologically screwed with me a bit. It's a little bit tough. Mm-hmm. And I almost skipped over the episode where uh where Hen- where, uh, where Henry dies. Yeah, yeah. When Reinhardt comes is, in and announces, uh, it. yeah, that's it's that's just, what... it's, ugh, it's one of the most heartbreaking scenes in. in Nobody in knew what where the scene was going except for um, Radar, whatever his name, Gary Berghoff, and nobody yeah. knew except for him. And they all reacted just oh, as wow. actors, you know. So that's, yeah, that's a that. pretty cool story, I think. And it, I'm telling you, as a, as a as a now 51 year, we watched Mash as kids growing up with my dad, and my dad loved it, and and so it's very nostalgic anyway. But um, there's lots of shows that we watched as kids with my dad that I, I will watch now and go, oh, <laughs> god dang, that does not hold up. I mean, Sanford and Son is not good. I'm sorry, I don't care who you are. Um, there were just there were. Uh, it's seven Adam three or whatever that goes through. It's all the like the cop shows. Anyway, one Adam twelve, one Adam twelve. I yeah. just made numbers up. You like that seven Adam three? There was seven Mary three. That was the band. Um, <laughs> chips, chips is horrifying. Go back and watch yes. old episodes of yeah. Chips and you just go, "What the, <laughs> the hell are we doing?" But Mash holds up. It really does. It's yeah. uh, it's solid social commentary along. All right, all right, all right. You convinced me. I'll I'll rewatch it. You <laughs> should. I, I'm telling you, it's, it's really cool because I don't I don't remember ever. Back in the olden days, when you actually had to be in front of the TV to watch the show when it came on, yeah, I, I didn't realize how many episodes I think I just missed. Yeah. Right, you know, you, yeah. sort of, you might miss miss one every yeah. other week or two, and and then hope no. to catch it someday on a rerun. But no stream. Um, yeah. There were there were at least a half a dozen episodes. I'm convinced I never saw yeah. at all. Well, okay. you didn't see it. Oh, you well, didn't that's see pretty it. cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, I didn't have it on tape or something anywhere. So, right. Um, all right. So the challenge to the podcast listeners. Um, if you haven't watched MASH in a while, go back and watch MASH and, and tell me if it still holds up. I have a feeling that your listeners have just fast-forwarded for 20 minutes anyway. I wish I could see that data. Does he have many people like, click an episode and then just scroll? Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. It's like, all right, let's get to the meat of this. But um, yeah, so curveball. Let's... Uh, mm-hmm. What, what, what's that about? <laughs> That's my favorite question, by yeah. the way. I was once on an interview with a guy for half an hour, and it was like another book, and he goes, so chapter one, that's called blah, blah, blah. What's that about? So I, explain it. So I would explain it, and like 10 seconds, and he'd interrupt me. Oh, chapter two, that's, t- that's his title. What's that about? <laughs> and after all, like I, this is a horrible, horrible situation that I'm in. It's just not working. <laughs> the real life Chris Farley, right? Remember, remember when you wrote that book, This Uncertainty? Remember, remember? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that was awesome. awesome. <laughs> that was awesome. Yeah. 
Oh gosh. Anyway, so was that a serious question? Like what? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, talk us through this. Talk us through this. Okay, but basically, here's the gist of the book. It's called Curveball because life throws us curveballs, which is experiences we all have that we we don't plan on. We don't know they're coming. They just come, and um, it's like the life of faith to me is like that too. It's like life throws you curveballs and it challenges how you think about everything, you know, um, life and faith and God. The, the book is mainly about God and how I process God on the basis of my own experiences. And the thing about curveballs, you know, I don't really overdo the baseball analogy, but I'm a big baseball guy. But if you don't adjust, you'll never hit the curveball. Yeah, And you're going to be sitting on the bench real fast. And I think it's about making adjustments to faith, which is the life of faith. That's not an unusual thing. That is what you do. When you're a person of faith, you're always making adjustments because God's out beyond us and ahead of us and all that sort of stuff. And I really believe that. So so uh, this book is about me talking about my own curveballs in life and how they affected how I think about God. I'm not telling other people they should have curveballs or they should have these curveballs. These are just the things that have happened to me that have made me process how I understand God. And, and it's given me sort of a, what I want to say in the book, a bigger and better God in, in the process. Yeah. So chapter one, um, what's that about? <laughs> what's that about? Um, I, I'm done. I hate you. No, <laughs> that that's Michael cool. take it off and throw it down. Right he's like, I'm out of here. here with your <laughs> asinine questions. Yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting though, because I think a lot of us that find ourselves out on the margins somewhat having, whatever, having sort of maybe left some some mainstream ideas of, of evangelical church and God and whatever, a lot of us find ourselves there because of the curveballs. Like I couldn't keep taking those ones, you know, on the outside edge of the plate. Right. And somehow convincing myself that I was okay. Like I'm like I was swinging wildly and missing. And so for a lot of us, the, the maybe it starts with, from, I'll, I'll, from my personal experience, I would say, it'll start with doctrines that painted God to be malevolent. And then somehow being told to adjust my definition of that. Mm-hmm. To be, well, if it's God doing it, it's okay. And so now bad is good and good is bad. And the cognitive dissonance was like, mm-hmm. it was too much. I couldn't do it. But for others, it might be more circumstantial, right? I mean, maybe like 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 tragedy or yeah. some kind of curveball that really comes in and wrecks your worldview up. And then all those things that you thought should fix that or help you navigate it, they don't work anymore. They don't work anymore, right? Yeah. So, I mean, the... The way um, I've put it is sometimes, you know, how we believe is no longer an explanatory paradigm for our lives. It's like, this this faith does not help me make sense of my life. It actually is something I have to keep defending tooth and nail. And there is overlap there with the sin of certainty, you know, the, uh, that I wrote a few years ago. It's, it's not the same book. This is very different, but all my books, actually, they do hang together. There are themes that unite them. I just explore them from different angles. But anyway, that was just a pitch for people to buy all my books. Well, you should. <laughs> if you don't have the entire catalog, what are you doing with your life? Yeah, I don't care if they read them. I just want no, them just, to buy, just buy them. them. That's all the average to me. It'd be nice if they were on the shelf somewhere. So, yeah. you know, when they take pictures. Do you do this too? See, I'm doing this right now, and I don't have a good enough camera. I, when, I, when, I, when I have people on who have a bookshelf behind them, then I do that. Ooh, what's on their bookshelf? I know, thing. yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm like, uh, oh man, they're all romance novels. Yeah, <laughs> I would have, I would have never pegged you for a huge Stephen King fan, but there's an entire cat. Although I do love Stephen King, but, 
But you're right, it's, it's circumstantial. It's circumstantial. Yeah. It's not, it, it could be tragedies, but it could just be you meet people, you know, who are different than you, who are wonderful. But they're supposed to be bad. Yeah, exactly. They're supposed to be the enemy, but they're not. And you just yeah. want to respect them and, and and you just like them, you know. And then you start thinking, well, does God like hate these people because they can't check off the boxes that I check off? And and what's God? What is the world anyway? You know, my, I just very quickly go to these places and, you know, it just I remember once sitting on an airplane. I was on my way to an academic conference. So they're all a bunch of nerds on this plane. You know, if, if that plane went down, nobody would miss it. That's what I think. <laughs> so, so I'm sitting in the middle and a woman next to me who had, this is like 20 years, 25 years ago. She was probably in her 60s at that point. I was in my 40s. And she asked me, what do you do? And I said, I teach at a seminary. I taught at a seminary back then. And she goes, oh, that's interesting. So you must study other religions. And I said, honey, didn't you hear what I just told you? I said, I teach in a seminary. We just deal with our religion. Now, I didn't say that, but I wanted to. And I said, well, no, not really. And she said to me, how can you understand your own religion when you don't understand other people's religions? And that stuck with me. That that hit me. And I've had many moments like that. They're just little... I didn't ask for that. Like, it isn't like this big, you know, problem I see looming on the horizon I have to deal with. It just, I'm just sitting on a plane, for heaven's sake, hoping to get wherever I'm going. And this person says something to me that really challenged how I thought about the nature of faith and, and by implication, God. You know, that's really what it comes down. It's not, it's not what you think about the Bible. It's what you think about God. That's, that's really what all this comes down to for me. And and we all have our images of God in our mind, and that's normal, right? We, we can't escape our human limitations and how we think about ultimate reality. And, but it's just realizing how limited we are, and those curveballs then become opportunities to um, interrogate our inherited faith and to see what's, what am I missing here? And the answer is a whole heck of a lot. But that's just because you're human, and that's not going to. There's nothing wrong with that. It's called growth, I think, and it is called faith. So, so the curveballs for me, you know, we all want the batting practice fastballs down the middle. But the thing is, life is like that. It's not God throwing us curveballs. I don't believe that. It's just life. It's just life in this cosmos that we live in, where weird stuff happens. We. We don't live really in an ordered cosmos. We live in a chaotic place that just things just happen, right? And, you know, how do you talk about God in light of that? Yeah. Right? That's, that's, that's the bottom line. I'm not trying to prove God. I'm just saying belief in God has to adjust for the reality that we see all around us. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, within the evangelical church, they do a really good job of, you know, isolating us from or trying to. They have this idea that they can isolate us from these curveballs, right? But then we go out into the quote unquote real world and we meet people that don't fit the mold, right? So I can use, you know, I, I have examples. I'm sure Nat has examples. You have examples. So, you know, in my early teens or no, sorry, late teens, I was asked to work in musical theater. And so I was introduced to a whole group of people who I would have never met. Yeah. Uh, if I hadn't said, Yes, to this, you know, this crazy moment of working in musical theater. And all of a sudden I'm meeting all these people 
that I was told for the last 17 years of my life that they're, they're evil, they're misguided, they don't understand humanity the way I do. And then I meet them and I'm like, oh, wait, they're, they're just like me. Yeah, exactly have, right. Yeah. They have, they have their own hurts. They have their own fears. They have their own life goals. And so that, that's the curveball at that moment, right? That I have to like acknowledge that I have been misled by a whole, by one group of people about a whole other group of people. Right. And so then I have to start questioning, okay, then that obviously that opens up the question, what else has my faith or my religion, say my religion, because not my faith, I don't think it really fits in within the faith, but definitely within the religion that I was brought up with, what else have they misguided me on, right? Right. And that's why, I mean, religious expressions that have, let's say, a posture of curiosity where you can formulate your ideas and you can hold those ideas. You can hold those ideas with conviction, but there is always that proverbial open hand that you hold it with, and it's not that you clench down on. And, you know, uh, John, something you said, um, you realize that they were just like me. And, uh, yeah, I agree with that. I think it's even more threatening to admit to yourself, I'm like them. Mm. You know, but because yeah, yeah. we are, you know, and and we all share the same DNA, and we're all screwed up, and we all have these horrible coping mechanisms we got because our parents screwed up, right? The old joke is if you've had parents, you need therapy. Just, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, except for my kids. Um, <laughs> well, my kids are beyond therapy, so yeah, they're beyond <laughs> therapy. Too, so. <laughs> it's just not going to help at this point. But you know, I just think that um, we're we're just all people, right? And the lines we draw. I, we, people draw lines. I mean, we, we have systems, we have ways of thinking, but again, those lines don't have to be walls that you have to blow down. You just cross those lines and see what it's like over there and talk to people and bring them over to your side and you go to their side. And, and at the end, hopefully you just understand each other a bit more and you're not always looking to, to say, you know, what's wrong with all those people out there? We're right. We, we've got the truths. We have, you know, we're, we're sanctified. We, we have the right way of thinking, and those other people are wrong. And I've been a part of Christian traditions that literally say that. They don't, they don't imply it. They say it. We are here to hold on to truth until you guys come around. And now I just think that's laughable. You know, if you're dealing with God, I think that's laughable. I was a part of a of a religious organization that sent missionaries to largely Christian countries, yeah, to convert them to the right Christianity. Exactly right. I mean, I was sent to Mexico to convert Catholics, you know, <laughs> like, because they needed they needed the right Jesus. They didn't have the right Jesus. They were all praying to idols and Mary and doing whatever the hell they did. And yeah. so, you know, it, it it that. But so I like this because it feels like to me, and you know, at least in in the, in, in the sense of these two books, Sin of Certainty and Curable, I'm sure they all. Like you said, they hinge on one another to some degree, but these two overlap so beautifully, I think, uh-huh. because one of those curveballs for me, as I think about it in those terms, which by the way, I really like, was having to let go of my uncertainties. Uh-huh. Having, I mean, I, okay, I guess I could have held on to them, but the contortions it required for me to hold on to those certainties were way more painful than letting them go. Um, not that letting, I mean, even the letting go came with a certain amount of angst. 
But I, I think you said something along the lines in, in, in Sin of Certainty that essentially you become like a sentry on the wall, keeping watch over your faith and other people's faith. And it's an exhausting, <laughs> pointless endeavor to get into. And so once you let it's that go... It's not joyful. You know, it's, no. it's, it's, it's a burden. And I, that's another thing. I don't think that our faith should be a burden. You know, yeah. and then, and then right away, you know, I hear the other voices coming up and saying, "So it's just whatever you want to believe, whatever makes you feel good." Like, well, no, it's not whatever. Do you hear what I'm saying? Curveballs, certainty. We don't have it. This is painful. This is not easy. Yeah. But there's still, I mean, the older I get, the more just serene I feel, knowing that this whole faith thing is in constant flux. Yeah. And there's nothing that I can possibly do about it. People have tried, and this is as old a problem as the biblical tradition itself. It's not even a problem. It's a reality that we have to deal with. And to me, it's like, okay, it puts God in that realm of mystery, right? Which is a Christian confession and a very old one. And that means that I don't have to focus on having all the right answers to things. I really only need to focus on the thing that I actually probably can control, which is how do I treat other people for starters? Well, that's a big thing. That's, that's, to me, that's most of it. How do we treat other people? And that's hard enough. <laughs> you know, <that's, laughs> yeah. I'm not always good at treating people I don't like well. Right. Well, I'm not always good at treating people I do like well. Yeah, I know that's I mean, true, right? Sometimes I treat I, I treat John like crap just just because, and I you like guys him genuinely. Train wreck, man. I haven't known you for very long, but you guys are yeah. probably. <laughs> I know, but that, we it's interesting. It's it's we just had a conversation with the with with the author named Heather Hamilton, and in her book, she's writing about some of these some of these certainties as well, and this this idea of of learning to let go of those in order to embrace these larger truths. And so I'll go back to another book you wrote about the Bible. And, and when, and because all this then begins to parallel too with some of the, some of the ways in which we insist that the biblical texts are literal or flattened or whatever they are. And all of a sudden, all this enormous amount of truth that can be plumbed from these stories gets reduced down to a two-dimensional children's story. You know, suddenly, you know, Jonah getting swallowed by the whale literally is way more important than anything else that happened in that story. Right. And yeah, exactly. Someone, some, the someone's going to yeah. yeah. Someone's going to build a theme park, you know, with a life-size version of the whale, and walk us through the digestive tract to show us that that it could happen. Well, as long as that whale or fish—it's not a whale, right, um, right? As long as that fish goes down to Sheol, to the boat right. dead, then you can have that ride. But that's, you're not going to have that part of it, you know. And and you also have to stay in there for three days, mom and dad, with your kids. You yeah, can't... I'm pretty sure Ken Ham's working on it, though, right? Because it'll be like a like a B and B experience. You can check in, stay for three days in the valley. <laughs> <laughs> go go to the land of the dead and come back again, and yeah. then you vomit it up onto the fun t- for the whole family. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but you're, you're right, though, that you know the the fixation on apologetics really, and and, and the yeah. prime apologetic is did it happen? Yeah. And when that's the focus, I mean, I, listen, I do think some things happened. I think some things are probably more important than others to have happened, sure. sort of happened, you know. But I think everyone recognizes the, 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 how the Bible's purpose is not to defend history. It's to talk about how this tradition 
affects them in their time and place. You know, and I, and I think that's, well, what if the tradition didn't happen? Well, what if it didn't happen exactly the way the Bible says? Or what if some things just didn't, didn't happen at all? I don't know. If, well, I don't know. I, I, you know. I don't think there was an Adam and Eve that were the first two human beings living a few thousand years ago. And and most evangelicals, frankly, don't think that either. You know, I talked with them. They have other ways yeah. of trying to jury rig and answer. Yeah, it kind of nuance it a bit. And... Yeah, I don't think it's a nuance. I just think, well, well, that's not true. I mean, we know scientifically that's not true. So how how do we think about these stories? And they have value in their ancient context. And I want to try to understand that value and be in conversation with this tradition rather than dogmatically insisting that these texts have to behave in the way that makes me feel better and more safe and like more certain that I've got the truth on my side, you know, and that's essentially, you know, people get mad at me when I say this, but that's okay. They don't, they don't sign my paycheck. I don't care what they think, but, um, (laughs) but, you know, I think that's the problem for me with many brands or even most brands of apologetics is that, it's only about establishing a certainty while ignoring many factors that might make you think that maybe this isn't exactly historical here. Maybe there's something else going on. And, and you know, if you guys have read anything I've written, you know all this stuff already. But, um, you know, there are four Gospels that are very hard to bring together into one. People have tried and they gave up. That was 2,000 years ago. We have two histories of Israel that are incompatible. They... The, 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 the names are the same, but how they describe things are very different because the writers are after different things. In the first 11 chapters of Genesis, you have two creation stories. You have two sets of two conflicting genealogies. You have a flood story that you have two versions are woven together where there are contra- internal contradictions to the flood story. It's like, it's like God said, fine, I'll give you a Bible. And I'm just going to make the first 11 chapters so screwed up. There's no way you're ever going to worship it. And thank you. And we all said, truth hold brother. my beer. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we'll show you. We yeah, can take exactly. it all literally and gaslight everyone who sees contradictions and tell them that they're not, that they're not really there. Yeah. No. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's the thing. And that's that drives. I mean, you know, I don't know, John, if that's sort of what happened to you, but that that's what drives people away because it's like, my own kids have talked about this growing up, saying, I don't believe any of this stuff because it doesn't make any sense. Well, right. So as when I was younger, and Nat and I have talked about this on the podcast, so I'm not going to like get really too deep into it, but you know, I was that kid who asked questions, right? Yeah. And as a younger kid, it's like stupid questions. I mean, really, but not stupid. Like, well, if Adam and Eve were the first two people on the planet, and then they had kids, who did their kids have kids with? I mean, just, you know, just silly questions. Not silly, because it's a common sense question. Right. But common sense is a question. In, in the early okay. 70s, you know, in Sunday school, their their answer was, well, we don't talk about that. Right. Um, and to the point where, you know, and Nat and I have talked about this too, that, you know, my parents were brought into the pastor's office and said, your son's asking too many questions because you just, Sunday school is not for questions. Sunday school is for indoctrination. You know, the film. Yeah, a felt board and pretty pictures of whales and mm-hmm. you know animals going into the ark, and it's basically you know the underlying story is right. Sunday school is where your kids go so you can come to church and not be bothered by kids. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so, but 
I, I couldn't stop asking questions, you know? Yeah. You know, because even back then they're trying to put on, you know, this like new, the young earth, the young earth idea of this, this earth isn't very old. Right. Then, you know, all you have to do is say, well, what about dinosaurs? And they can't answer that question because they're not mentioned in the Bible. Except fake John. Quote unquote, there's a, there's a couple, there's a couple versions, you know, the couple verses in the Bible that talk about some kind of large animal, right? Yeah. They can say, well, see, dinosaurs existed. And so you start shutting down. You don't want to ask questions. Right. Because you don't want to be the problem. You don't want to, but if there's any intellectual honesty, within these these stories of the Bible, you got to start looking at them deeper. And there must be a deeper meaning than yes. Jonah was swallowed by a fish, the parting of the Red Sea, just the creation story itself. Like you said, two different versions of the creation mm-hmm. story that contradict each other. Right. And so it's it, it just poses these questions that I think if we were to be more open and honest, there is way more involved within the faith of how we see God than how we are to interact with this supposed God that they see in these early versions of the Bible that is um, very dark, very monstrous, very, uh, you know, I mean, the whole, the, the whole flood story is, is just, it's, it's a God throwing a tantrum and saying, I, I can't even, I can't even like the thing I created, right? And then we're supposed to just be okay with that. Right. But he's got a love, John. Don't worry. Yeah. All right. 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 And we get a rainbow and a dove. He made a promise. He won't ever do it again. Same thing I told my wife. Like, I'm sorry, baby. It'll never happen again. I painted you a rainbow. We wouldn't believe that son of a bitch either. What kind of thing is that to say? We talked about this with, with, with quite a few people, but when we take a look at some of these stories and we can regard, let me ask you this way. I mean, scrap that question. Um, was there not, has there not been a tradition inside of the, of the Christian church up until say, you know, the time of the Reformation and beyond a little bit where that was the sort of, I mean, origin looked at the entire Old Testament as allegorical. Mm-hmm. And there have been, I mean, it seems to me like the majority of, of Christian tradition was not one that held the Bible to a strictly literal interpretation. Well, no, because they were, they realized that, see, it's not that they were anti-literal. It's just they realize right. that, like, well, yeah, literal is fine if you're a simpleton. Sure. If you're deep, then you're going to look for hidden meanings and deeper meanings, and that's oftentimes called allegory, right? So, and that's the way ancient people wrote tech, read texts that were worth reading. The, the, and especially, so this is the irony for evangelicals. I mean, Origen and Clement and others, and Philo, who was a Jewish allegorizer, that really kicked the whole thing off for Christians. But it's because the Bible is God's word that it requires allegorical interpretation. That's very different than how uh, people who are influenced by the Protestant Reformation think. You know, Calvin literally thought that allegory was satanic. Yeah. He says that in his commentary on Galatians. He's like, he doesn't like it. I understand why he would say that the time he's, he's living in and all the stuff that's happening, but that sort of flies in the face of minimally a thousand years of church history. And I would argue, no, going back into the biblical tradition itself, they're, they're non-literal creative engagements with texts. 
that's normal. This whole scientific analysis thing where, you know, there's only one meaning and the Reformation was very influenced by the growing science mentality, you know, um, you know, push back against enlightenment kind of stuff. And well, actually, they were influenced by that more than I think people realize, because, you know, if science comes around and says, you know, we can explain how the planets move by math. And there's one answer to why they move the way they do. Well, that was, this is a bit simplistic, but that was sort of applied then to biblical interpretation. That's where you get the notion, one text, one meaning. Right, right. And if you do it right, if you know your Greek and Hebrew, you're going to get the right meaning. Right. The thing is, like, anybody who studied Greek and Hebrew knows that's wrong because it's like, it's more ambiguous in Greek and Hebrew, and the English just clears it up, so we buy their Bibles. Exactly. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so, well, we want mathematical proofs for... For yeah. things that they don't have mathematical proofs for. I mean, I mean, my Bible says X, X, well, other translations don't. And like, there are places where people don't really know exactly what's going on with the Greek and Hebrew. Not, you know, the faith doesn't hang in the balance. And it certainly doesn't hang in the balance if you already have the notion that you're not expecting the Bible to give you scientific or mathematical precision. It's, it's reflections of people of faith living a very long time ago who had encounters with the divine. And we're reading about it, and they have different opinions. Then you fast forward that to what we call the evangelical church that that, that I that I was raised in, and that was raised in. You know, I'm not going to make an assumption that you were raised in, but then to use the the title of your book, then you're throwing some kind of curveball, right? So Nat and I have a very similar curveball. Uh, I was outside the faith. Nat was inside the faith when we both had this curveball, which is that our, that our child required some major medical inter- intervention. My son required multiple surgeries to, ca- to create a defect that he was born with. I wasn't, I wasn't within the faith, but I was so staunch and so connected to that faith that I was raised in that I bought into this idea of karma. Right. So as I'm waiting for my son to go in for his first surgery when he was eight months old, um, I would do stupid things like I would pull up to a four way stop and I'd let the person go ahead of me because I needed to build up those points, those, those positive points. Right. Cause this is that curveball, right? That has been thrown at me that I have to protect my child both by being there for him and in the metaphysical. So I'm going to create a scenario where I build up these karma points. Um, so I would open doors for people. I would, I, everything that I thought I could do to build up this karma that when my son went in for his surgery, that everything would be okay. Yeah. Uh, Nat has a very similar story with his daughter, but he was within the, inside the faith when his daughter had to go through her medical trauma. But the question is, as you go through this, and so my son required, required multiple surgeries. Uh, the first surgery didn't fix his issue. It required almost, I think, six surgeries. There was this crisis of faith, right? Uh, even though I was outside the faith, I, for me, what it did is it just solidified that God doesn't exist, that God can't help, regardless of how much I pray, regardless of how many good things I do to counteract the evil. Uh, it doesn't work. Nat, uh, has his own story of praying and praying and praying for his daughter as she's going through this medical emergency. But these are the curveballs that cause us to question and, and dive deeper, right? Into the essence of who and what God truly is. 
right? I mean, if God exists, what do these moments tell us, right? That's why I don't, I'm not big on proving or disproving God either Amen. way. I don't think, I just don't think, you know, I've been influenced by people. I know the Greek Orthodox tradition is, is like this. You know, David Bentley Hart is a pretty smart guy and, and I've read him and uh, he's given me language to think about this more clearly, but I just don't think that that God is manipulated in that way and God acts like this. You know, I don't think these things are God's fault and I don't think we have to prove ourselves to God to make bad things go away. I think we live in an evolving cosmos where stuff happens and that's just the way it is. And, and um, you know, Tom Ward, I don't know if you've had him on your podcast, but he's a friend of mine and if you haven't, you should, um, but he wrote a book, God Can't, a few years ago which is interesting. You know, I said, I saw, I'm trying to process how he, he works through this stuff, but he says, well, God can't intervene. It's against his nature. And if, and if God intervenes and God is controlling and a loving being doesn't control. Right. Yeah. And yeah, we've had Tom on a couple of times, right? Or just once. I think we, so. need have him back. Just, we need to have him back on. I, the first book of his that I read was um, Uncontrolling Love of God. Right. Um, where he kind of lays that out to begin with. And I think he really hit it home with God can't. Like any theology for me, all theology breaks down at some point. Oh yeah. Mark Karras, I don't know if you know who Mark Karras mm-hmm. is. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah. S- some of his writings, they're, they're, on a, they're on a similar trajectory as far as their sort of open uh-huh. relational theism. But Mark was able for me to rescue any notion of petitionary prayer with his sort of, I think he calls it conspiratorial prayer. Uh-huh. So this idea is not so much that we pray for God to intervene, but we ask we ask God to show us ways in which we can partner with him to do whatever he's doing in the cosmos. Because some of, some of Tom's, and I, I've had this conversation with Tom, I'm like, there, there are times when that theology gets to be borderline nihilistic. It's like, okay, well, I can pray to God all I want to, but it's not going to cause him to intervene. So what is the freaking point? And uh, Mark, Mark, Again, I think, and I don't think Mark and Tom are in disagreement. I just think they articulate it differently. Uh-huh. But yeah, I mean, I, that I got to a point where I'm listen on its face. I'm on board with all of that because the if that's not true, the opposite is actually even more abhorrent to me. Right. And exactly. I think that's Tom the would point, say, right? you know, that's yeah. the point, right? If God is, yeah. if God, God's either in control so much so that He's responsible for everything, right? And then He picks and chooses whom He will rescue and whom He will inflict, and then He's just capricious. And then he's just, you know, he's he's monstrous. Well, in some he's ways. capricious unless you make this whole thing transactional, like right. the thing, right? Like you, you let people go yeah. behind you open doors for them, and that you know that's that feeds into, I think, just or maybe a, just a natural human tendency to think of in transactional terms. I guess I think that's true. John's curveball with his with his son happened when his son was little, and and I think it progressed until he was. I mean, those, those surgeries were spaced out over years, right? Mm. Yeah, I, I think his last surgery, I think he was 12. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so yeah. it wasn't, you know, it wasn't sure. you know, something that was emergent. It was something that was going to have to be fixed over the long term as he grew. And it had to do with the way that his 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 skull had formed and sutures in his, in his skull had fused too soon, right? Anyway, my daughter's was more emergent. It was like she was dying. And, you know, she was on life support and she was, they wouldn't even give me percentage odds she would survive, let alone whether she would recover fully. So we spent months in the hospital and we paced the halls and I was smack dab in the middle of deconstructing everything. 
Like I'm, I already had just, I, had, I don't think I'd prayed in a year because I didn't know how to pray. And so this was all this information that, but like John said, so much of that indoctrination um, is so sort of deeply embedded in you that you still, you retreat to those places, right? It's baked in. It's, it's so baked yeah. into us. It's our natural default place to go. And it takes, forgive me, it takes a lot of batting practice to, you yeah. know, to, 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 to learn how to play that game a little bit differently. And it's hard. And that's why, I mean, I don't chide people who think the way that you guys are describing, because I understand that in some sense, we've all been there. Yeah, you know? absolutely. But at some point, you just, you, we come to a point where you can either choose, there is no ultimate reality beyond our experience or our existence. There's no, there's no God, there's no spirit, there's nothing like that. Or to say, well, maybe there is, and I've just been thinking wrong <laughs> about it. Yeah. And then you start engaging smart people in the history of Christianity and Judaism who got this a long time ago. Yeah. And and different issues, they don't have to deal with evolution or an infinite cosmos, you know, or things like that. Right. But they had to deal with other things, and they intuited pretty quickly that the Bible, like, points you to things. It's not the end of it all. It's, It's a means of grace. It's a way of moving you along. It's Judaism is very good at this. I write about this in my books. You know, every chance I get, I talk about how Judaism handles the Bible traditionally differently than Christians have traditionally handled it, especially over the past five, six hundred years. And that's, there's a lot of, it doesn't give you the answers that you want, but if we looked at it for answers, I think, frankly, we'll all be atheists. Yeah, yeah, uh, I think you're right about you know, that. Yeah. Like, and I, I know people, how can you say that? Yeah, you just start putting the pieces together and it's like, okay, this is not a book dropped out of heaven that's giving us perfect rules. This is a mess. It's an anthology of literature that is self-contradictory. And and it was put together by people, by Jewish scribes, who knew that. You know, it's yeah, like, exactly. they're like trying to cover up the mess. Like, this is all part of our tradition. This is all going to sort of make it in there. And and I just think there's got to be a lesson there for us to learn if we're trying to pursue a life of faith, interrogating not just our inherited faith, but interrogating the Bible itself and yeah, letting sure. that be an act of, of worship, as, as you know, I've heard Jews talk about it. So, yeah, I, for me, the largest, the, the, the biggest piece of evidence that the Bible was never meant to be taken that way is the Bible itself. Because really, if you were a, a if you were somebody who was looking to uh, to promote an idea about this piece of writing, would you, could you not manipulate this better to maybe smooth out some of those rough yeah, edges? I know. To maybe make some of those sticking places a little less sticky. Well, and I hear um, people, you know, just you know, on TikTok, or the, there are atheist channels there, and there are some people who make a lot of sense. But um, things like the idea of God's nonsense, because if God would give us a book that would prove him, it did a horrible job, and this book makes no sense. And it's like, yeah, that's like not a new insight. You know, this people are thinking about this. <laughs> Obviously, we know that. That's why Christian philosophers understand this. They may disagree on some things, but they understand this yeah. as they always have. And what we're really reacting to is a, a really a Western fundamentalism. That's really what people, re- and rightly so. And yeah, exactly. I just don't, I just, I refuse to think that 
either fundamentalism is right or there's no ultimate consciousness, ultimate mind, ultimate presence, ultimate love or creator. I just, to me, that's arrogant to, to make that kind of conclusion. Now, I'm an open book as to like, you know, if you ever meet God one day, which I don't know how that would even look like, you know, but, um, yeah. you know, I, I plan on being very surprised and very happy. Yeah. I'll leave, <laughs> leave too, you know? Yeah. But so a certain sense of a certain amount of agnosticism seems genuinely helpful. I mean, I remember asking one of my friends before, you know, she was going through some stuff. I actually had her on the podcast and we asked her like, do you still believe in God? And she says, yeah, most days. You know, most days. And I think that's an honest assessment of, okay, there are days when I struggle with the idea that God even exists. You know, there are, there are certainly days when I, I wonder about my ability to connect with whatever, whatever that is or to even understand it well enough to get dogmatic about anything again. I don't think that's ever going to happen again. Where I can, like I can know beyond a shadow of a doubt X, Y, and Z. But is that something that you went through? Did you go through a phase in your, maybe your 20s and your 30s where like apologetics was kind of it? Like, hey, this is like, I, like I'm good at, I'm good at argument and I, you know, I don't know. I did go through that. Not really in my 20s, more in my 40s. I'm a late bloomer. But where I really struggled with nothing I've ever been taught makes any sense to me whatsoever. It was like, it was a hard reset, so to speak. And, and you know, I think, you know, I know Rachel Halevins called herself like an agnostic Christian or something, and I've used that language for myself. I, you know, I'm, Dale Allison is great with this, who teaches at Princeton. He's a New Testament scholar. He talks about this kind of stuff a lot. The thing is that there's a part of me that I can't help the fact that I've been born and educated in, a, in the modern world. It has nothing to do with a PhD, just living in the modern world. And so there's a, you know, we have a built-in historical skepticism, but there's also a faith dimension. And, you know, bringing those two worlds into conversation, that's pretty much the story of how I process my faith. Yeah. So, yeah. And uh, it's made it easier for me by realizing what others knew long before I came on the scene, that is, you're just not going to know everything. You're going to have convictions about things, but to have this objective knowledge, how dare we think that when we're talking about God, especially because we're talking about God? How dare we do that? We just have our traditions and our experiences that I think God honors. I, I think I think yeah, that's important, you know, and and it all works together and. It's okay to try your best to have it make sense. It's okay to not know. It's okay to be not sure. It's okay to despair. It's okay to be happy. You know, all, this is just a part of our life of faith. And and again, it's not like I'm just making all this up so I can feel better about myself. Like, I'd rather have it the other way. And I don't, you know, and I just have to deal with what we have. And that's what I think we have, at least. And that's to me, that's all there is to it. If people feel differently, that's fine. Uh, that's why the block button is there on on Facebook. And <laughs> or hi. Well, we actually need to talk about that. You didn't need to block me on Facebook. Um, <laughs> you could have just unfollowed me, dude. That was a little, a little harsh. No, I'm sorry. I, I'll, I'll, right. I mean, do you, do you find say? that that is... <laughs> was that John? I can relate to this. John's, John, John's trying desperately to be serious, and I just keep 
I know. No, 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 no. I'm just watching. Do you, do I you find it. that there there is this almost like this? I don't even know, I don't know how to call what to call it. Like a like these stepping stones. Like I did it, and I don't know if this is like a typical thing. So as I like re-entered, you know, quote unquote, the faith. Um, one of the first steps for me was a, was apologetics because I think I needed that. For yeah, a, maybe for you did. Minute. Yeah, yeah. And so C.S. Lewis became like the end all for me. Like I, I totally got you know, mere Christianity was like the stepping sure. stone for me back into some yeah. kind of faith. But well, that's a nice stepping stone, and there are different types of apologists. I think right. C.S. Lewis is not like an evidentialist here is proving right. things. I think he just more paints a picture. He's of, not like that sort of Lee Strobel kind of approach, you know, yeah. the case for Christ, which is... Right. But even within C.S. Lewis, so I made the conscious effort that I was going to reread Mere Christianity once a year because it was such an influential wow. connection for me and, and a, like a reintroduction of faith. But as I read it every year, I find that I agree with him less and less. Well, I think that's... The thing is that there, there, there are certain things that function as like a gateway drug for for people. It's just a different thing. And that might have been yours. And, you know, I've heard many people say, you know, if Lewis were, I mean, Lewis was a smart guy. You know, he knew his mythology or whatever. But if if he were really trained in, let's say, theology or really philosophy or 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 biblical studies, history, things like that, he might have nuanced certain things differently, right? But yeah, I think so. Um, he does give people permission, though, to think you can be, you you can use your reason to 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 think about things. You don't have to be afraid of that. And the one thing, you know, what blew me away from your Christianity is it's been thirty years since I've read your Christianity. But there are just two kinds of people, you know, who are Christians or non Christians. There are people who are Christian but on the way out. There are people who aren't Christian, but on the way in. And I, I was like, that was revolutionary to me to think that way, that like, it's all good. Now, I might expand that now in my own thinking to not limit it to to people who are, are, are Christian. Um, I might say there are people who are in Christ and people on the way to in Christ, but they might not be Christian ever. <laughs> you yeah. know, I, I, and I don't know, but Lewis thinks that too, because if you read the Chronicles of Narnia, you know, he talks about yeah. in, 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 the, in the final last battle, it's just, he clearly has a notion of what's called ultimate inclusivism or something like sure. that. Right. Some kind and, of and, ultimate and, reconciliation. And, yeah. And Nat and I have discussed this, that there, there, for anyone who delves deeply into Lewis, you find out there, there are two versions of this man. There's a version of the man who wrote these books like Mere Christianity. And then there's this version of the man who wrote these letters to people who wrote to him. And the letters are, I, I find, more telling. Well, he's much more, he's much more candid in the letters, you know. Um, so I would, I would, I would venture to that he wasn't as staunch in his right. Christianity as, as a lot of like evangelicals want him to be. You know, he's the evangelical darling in a lot of, in a lot of places. But I think if they were to read his letters, they were like, ah. Right. Yeah, but I don't really like what he said there. Well, Mere Christianity was something he wrote, you know, right? Radio broadcast. Yeah, I think right. he was yeah, for radio addresses during the war, right? Yeah, during the war, I think yeah. he was his. Per, there was a, there. It's a genre. There was a purpose for it to give people some hope. And I think it's like you know, James. You know, don't doubt. You know, don't be cast about by these waves and things like that. And that's great. 
but you get to a point in your life where you need those lament psalms. You, you yeah, need the exactly. complexities of it. You need to see the contradictions in Scripture. It's like, okay, listen, this is a very human book. I get it. And it actually is inviting me to investigate and to try to look at these things. So I think, you know, not every moment is a mere Christianity moment. And it performs a function. You know, not, I mean, not that I'm C.S. Lewis, but not every moment is a sin of certainty moment for some people. For some people, it's like, I'm going through hell right now, and I don't want to, like, play around with, well, I can't really be certain of stuff. There are times that doesn't work, you know, and I realize that. And that's, to me, that is part of what's wonderful about this faith, that it can handle all that stuff. It doesn't just have to be one way. Well, yeah, so, and then for me, then, that's the uh, that's the ultimate sin of of fundamentalism is it it, it makes this this it makes this experience so rigid uh-huh. you know and it builds these you know it draws these lines of demarcation that are just so you know they're they're incontrovertible and you can't be and it it yeah. forces people into corners right. for when the shit does hit the fan and when things do go seriously wrong and then the formulas no longer work you're left with okay well then it, you know there were times when you know, I, I sort of retreat to my formulas. You know, I, I mm-hmm. really spent a lot of time in the Word of Faith movement in the in the nineties and the two thousands. Oh my! And so I, yeah, yeah. You, I'm, I'm so sorry, sorry too. Um, <laughs> so you know, I literally had people coming from a church that I used to attend, but um, they had heard about my daughter and they traveled to Austin to see her, and um, they would want to pray with her, and that's fine, that's great. And then they would, you know, not many, but a couple of them who almost found themselves you know, thrown out a third story window, you know, asking me about unconfessed sin in her life. Uh-huh. Or, uh, were there things that, 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 you know, that, that we weren't aware of that this, this could be, you know, all brought on by, and I, I, you know, those are the kinds of questions that, that create atheists. <laughs> I no, was exactly like, right. Like, yeah. Are you, I, I, I dabbled with it. I have, I, I don't know if you know who Jeff Turner is. If you don't, you should. He's great. He wrote a book called The Atheistic Theist. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's, mm-hmm. he's a good dude. But he and I both had this conversation when he was on the podcast. And we like, we've both tried. I really have tried. I've, I've dabbled with atheism. I, I gave it my best shot. I just can't do it. I can't pull it off. I, I can pull off a pretty soft agnosticism. But the God part of me is too baked in for me to just, you know, throw my hands up and forget about it. But there were times when that was appealing as hell. Right. You know what I mean? There were times when it was like, you know what? Yeah, I, I don't need well, any of this Because you'd be you know? free of a toxic faith. Yeah. And if those are your choices. Yeah, no faith or toxic faith. I think any reasonable person is going to say, there's no, there's no God, there's no faith. I think that, that that to me is more reasonable given those premises. Right. But the way people articulate this faith, that... I mean, unfortunately, that always reflects on the real thing. That always reflects on God. God's always sort of like lumped into that. But you know, it's it's um, that the perversions of something are never the real thing, and we all have perversions of it. You know, we sure. we just do. But it's like you know, uh, John Caputo. You know, the the philosopher, the um, oh yeah, deconstructionist talks about how. You know, um, we're all shooting for things like justice. We have this ideal of justice, but we're not always, we can't, we can't reproduce the essence of it in our daily existence. So we're always like, we have the little J justice is, which are all tainted and, and 
not really always very functionally helpful. That was an approximation of justice that's out there or something. And I, I think that works for anything we ever say when we open our mouths about God. We're trying to um, reflect the image back to God, but we do it in our limited childish ways, you know, and that should bring humility to us when we, when we realize that. And I think, I think, you know, you summon it like the word here, but I think it does take a certain degree of enlightenment to be able to understand that. And that enlightenment comes typically through pain. That's my opinion. I mean, Richard Rohr says, it's either through great pain or great love. It's not great love with me. It's pain. The love doesn't work, whatever. But it's it's the pain that makes you reevaluate what you're thinking and what you're doing, you know. And especially pain with children is horrible. You know, I've had that too. Not to these, not 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 the the way you guys are describing, but a lot of my, you know, I talk about in the sin of certainty, right? So um, a lot of uh, my curveballs have been either pain towards me or pain towards people around me that I care about. And it just it makes you reevaluate very quickly. Like that Jenga tower falls down very quickly of karma or whatever. It just, it doesn't make sense. Well, and it's, 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 it doesn't take much when you, when you are, when you are thrown into a place of pain, be it a child or a family member or, you know, a close friend, uh, before, you e- you either become hard hearted and nothing matters anymore, or there's a level of empathy that you now create that, that allows you to see pain in others. And so, uh, and that, and I think that is a closer connection to God mm-hmm. than certainty in any in any oh, yeah. stretch of the, uh, stretch of imagination. The understanding and the ability to step into someone else's pain because you've been there is a much better connection and a much more a much more god moment right i mean that's called love to get not to get too mushy about it but that's love and i think that's that is a very biblical idea that you know it's through love that we see god and it's the love we show to each other that people see god and if we polarize there are times to fight i just think it's a lot less frequently than many people think yeah, I, I agree. It, it's a, uh, and you know, tomorrow is Valentine's Day, so we can we can get mushy about love. That's okay. <laughs> it's also it's also my nephew's birthday tomorrow. So happy birthday! Yeah, okay, that's to nice. nephew Everett, who will never ever listen to this podcast. So okay, but I'll lie to him. I, I can tell him later on. I remembered. So in your in your, you know, I know you've been you've been in this kind of work for quite a while, but who. This may sound like a very basic question, but I bet our listeners would like to know what kind of what who are some of your influences as far as like people that you read now or maybe people that you've read over the last few years are like, hey, this this person's really killing it on this subject. I hate that question. I know you do. <laughs> I hate it. I hate because I you just don't, don't want to give Tom Ward any more any more traffic no, to his like, website. It's no, I'm like just you know, most people that I just come across, I learned yeah. something. You know, I don't I don't have specific heroes, but there have been moments where I think I, I, I've been struck by this deeper awareness of things. And, you know, the the people that I do like to mention, you know, in graduate school, I had Jewish professors. And, um, you know, James Kugel is one, John Levinson is another. And 
Um, you should get them both on your podcast here. John Levinson wrote a great book called The Love of God, where he sounds a lot of themes that we've been talking about here today. But um, they, I don't think I've been as affected by people in terms of how I just understand the Bible, which for me always spirals into how I understand God, um, then studying with Jewish professors. And I wish everybody had that opportunity because it really was very important. And I've had very good Christian teachers as well. I'm not, I'm not, but it was like, it hit me at the right time where like that was a pivot point for everything within a semester of graduate school. But do you find too then, so sticking on that theme then, um, I find that especially in Western, you know, Protestantism, there's a, there's a serious misunderstanding of Judaism, a certain amount of caricature that goes so that, that studying with somebody who's actually, you know, well-versed in this could help alleviate some of that. Do you, do you, do you oh, think yeah. that, that to have that sort of better, especially when it comes to like sort of second temple Judaism, first century, you know, hey, the time of Jesus, we, a lot of us think we know what Judaism looked like then. And so we create straw men of, of, you know, these sort of caricatures of what Pharisees were. Yeah, and, legalism, things like that. So, yeah, so yeah. the entire Jewish law was just all about legalism and, and thank God he rescued us from that. Right. Which right. Jews don't even believe in. It's, it's, it's not running away to heaven. It's being a part of the kingdom of God here. Right. And I think Jesus had some things to say about what that kingdom of God would look like and things. But it's still not about going to heaven when you die. That's just not an issue for them. And other people, Tom Wright's one of them, has argued that that's not even the issue for Paul. You know, it's not like what happens to you when you die is not the primary question that's being asked. It's it's talked about when, you know, the thief on the cross, uh, on the cross next to Jesus and, you know, be with me today in paradise, that kind of thing. I mean, it's there, but it's not, that's all part of the Jewish matrix itself, right? So it's not a new thing Jesus is saying that nobody had heard of before. But the focus is different, right? So um, the 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 agendas of the key biblical figures that Christians talk about, namely Jesus and Paul, that would be shifted the more you understand how they were completely Jewish. Even though Paul, cha- I, I, I'm I'm one of those people. I, I do think Paul challenged his own tradition very deeply. And even said that Jesus changes even how we think about this tradition. But he's still Jewish. He's still doing that within a Jewish framework. So, Yeah, uh, Dom Crossan was one that um, kind of got me thinking about some of this way back. And then, and then he came along not too long ago and wrote that, uh, wrote that the render unto Caesar. Yes. And, so, and now he tackles now placing Jesus not just inside of his Jewishness, which is obviously very critical, right. but also placing him inside of his Roman culture. Absolutely. Is it, and just, uh, if to the listeners who haven't maybe read that book, check it out. I mean, yeah, but Dom, Dom was a guy that I read in my, so I talked about being in my twenties and being really an apologist and being a kind of a, I was pretty hardcore evangelical, very conservative. And I took a class in college and the textbook was, was John Dominic Crossan's um, historical Jesus. And I threw that book more than, oh, I hated that book. And I did not like him. And I was, yeah. oh, it was just, <laughs> you know, and it, it bristled every every little bit of my sort of, you know, young Republican evangelical mind. And then 20 years later, I'm like, God, Crossan's a genius. Yeah. 
this is really good stuff. So yeah, he handled he had a handle on stuff. That's right. He, he did. We had him on the podcast a few months back, and number one, he's just he's just a he's just a nice guy. He's a warm um, person, yeah, and yeah. he's a. a and very generous to to come hang out with us and talk. But I told him that story and he just, he, he sort of chuckled and went, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, I mean, you know, writing that about um, n- not to make Judaism the whole thing, it's the Greco-Roman context, but of course, it's a Hellenized Judaism that we're talking Absolutely, about. yeah. And that's, that is what, and the thing is that, you know, as as you know, that, there are there were different responses on the part of Jews for hundreds of years before the Romans ever came around um, to what it means to be Jewish in their own land when they're run by the Persians and then the Greeks and then the Romans, right? So, as you have so you have Jews who don't agree on the posture they should take toward their Gentile overlords, and then you have the whole presence of Greco-Roman thought. And and um, and the Roman Empire, it's it's a mess. I mean, it's a complicated mess. And to make these simplistic claims about what Jews thought at the time or what what the Romans thought at the time. I mean, sometimes you have to teach like that. I mean, I teach college students. I have to get them into the world a little bit. But there's a reason why people study this stuff their whole lives, because it's like, you know, we don't have all the data. We have some data. And those data don't work together very well. And so you have to keep thinking about how the pieces that we know fit together. And eventually, sometimes people find archaeological artifacts that help put some of the pieces together. But for the most part, we're flying blind. But we know it's complicated. You know, so it's, it's um, it, and that's what people, you know, they watch the History Channel. They take a college course and they learn things that intuitively makes sense not to you right away now that i mean you you were resisting it but eventually it made sense to you what i was saying right and that's the kind of thing that the church only well the the, the churches we're talking about here will only work in isolation from broader scholarly and scientific discussions it, it can't survive fully engage them, because if you do, you probably become a process theologian, or at least a progressive Christian, or an agnostic Christian, but you won't be the Bible-carrying evangelical at that. And I, and I, I have evangelical friends who are going to punch me the next time I see them, but I'll take it. I'll take the blow, because that's what I believe. That's what I think. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it, it does mean, create, it creates those issues, doesn't it? I mean, the uh, the 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 more I thought about it, and the more I still think about it, you know that that's that's one of the the parts of this that are that are beautiful to me are I'll tell you just from my perspective where I am now at my age and how like I don't have to just reject things out of hand anymore because they don't fit my my paradigm, you know I don't have to I don't have to deny science and say well the Earth must be six thousand years old because by God the Bible said so I can say. Hmm, these things are not mutually exclusive, and that's the, the the only the only real axe I have to grind with 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 atheists. And there's only a handful of them that are this way. They're every bit as fundamentalist as any hardcore evangelical I know. And they read the text the same way, right? So that they can say this is ridiculous. 
So I'm like, well, okay, let's at least be honest and say not all Christians read the text that way. Mm-hmm. We don't all draw these same conclusions. I don't insist the earth is flat because once upon a time in one verse or two, the Bible seems to to, to say that. Written 3,000 years ago, right? So, right. But I, I think you're right. The, the, um, there, there is a freedom, I think, to, and a good freedom, not like, I don't want any authority over me for you. It's just, it's, there's a freedom to like saying, I can think about this stuff. I, I, can, I can have the real discussion between science and a religion, for example. And a lot of people have been, and they are, and they're deep, and they're wonderful. They're not simplistic, like, which one are you going to choose? You know, it's right, a, right. misunderstanding well, of both. Right. So how how can they be in conversation? And there are some, you know, there are atheist scientists who don't think that conversation can be had. And there are fundamentalist Christians that don't think it should be had. But I really think most people are not there. They want they want to bring those things together. And you can only do that if you're just a little bit let, not uptight. Yeah, and you can and you can say, you know, like I would say that the the world that the world that exists when you try to mesh those things together is so freaking complicated and amazing and complex and beautiful and mysterious and whatever. And both the other versions of those worlds are sterile and boring and predictable. And, you know, we only accept information that, that, that confirms this bias. And so, man, I just, if, if, I just can't imagine that God created a world that simplistic. That we couldn't just go. Well, and, and quantum physics shows us that God didn't create a world that simplistic. Yeah. It is work by those rules, you know, and that's I have two chapters on that in my book because I I think it's so fast. I don't understand quantum physics. Yeah, no, I don't. Who does? But I can't even spell quantum physics. (laughs) Sure, you can. I'm sure there's. I'm sure there's. I'm sure sure there's an R in there somewhere. Yeah, but I'm not sure where it goes. There's a silent P. Um, Yeah. Whatever you say. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I just, it's the universe we live in is there's, you know, on a fundamental level, it doesn't act according to the rules that we take for granted. And one of the parts, one of the points of the book is that that has to reflect on how we think about God. If, you know, if, if we have a creation that is essentially unfathomable, how much more unfathomable is the creator of all this stuff? And to me, that's not a despairing insight that's more like i just get to try the best that i can because i'm not going to get it it's like expecting you know a newborn to build a car or something it's like it's just not going to happen but they could just be cute and they go goo goo gaga they can play with crayons and you know what was whatever they just they have to be babies (laughs) we have to be humans yeah what if god doesn't hate us what if god's not against us what if yeah what if God is moving all things to completion? What if all things are summed up in Christ? What if all that stuff we read about in the Bible is actually true, not just the polarizing stuff, you know? So and that, to me, that's good news, and that's, that's, a, that's a reason to pursue this faith, in my opinion, you know? Here, here. I agree. Man, John, my friend, you got anything to add to this conversation? Nothing, nothing intellectual. No, no, I'm just kidding. I was just, <laughs> Me I'm, just I'm just, I'm just checking out the time zone. We probably, we should probably wrap this up. Um, yeah, let Pete get back yeah. to get back to Netflix or whatever he was doing. No, sleeping. Oh yeah, it's, it's, you're, you're, it's my bedtime. It's almost ten thirty, man. I'm, I'm already two hours past mine. So my bedtime is nine thirty, 
which is when this probably should have ended if I had shown up on time. This is entirely so we guilted you into staying for an extra 30 minutes. So that's we that's appreciate that. Hey, no, again, back to the blowing smoke part. I, I, yeah, I just appreciated. I've appreciated your work to this point. I still appreciate it. Um, I, I, it informs my current thinking, which I, I always get. A, I love that I get a chance to talk to some folks who have had that big an influence, and so I appreciate that. Well, I love talking to people too who, um, you know, kindred spirits. Where 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 we've had experiences that have pushed us to certain things, and we could talk about them. You know, and and you know, not everybody has the opportunity to do what we're doing right now. There are people who feel churches that are stuck. And they can't get out, and they don't. They're quiet. They can't talk to. They can't. Having this conversation openly someplace would be very threatening. So it's fun for me too to to absolutely get to know people, to get to know you two guys, and yeah, just just chewing the fat here about stuff that we think it's a lot of fun. I appreciate that. Well, man, that was the uh, the book is out. Go buy it. Um, In fact, buy two or three copies. um, buy one to uh, just put on your shelf and make yourself look intellectual. Maybe one or two to give away as presents. Um, or you see, may just want to read it more than once, so you might want well, several copies. Well, or, you know, well, if you buy three <laughs> copies and you don't have to. If you reread it, you yeah, you could damage it. True. So buy three copies that you read once each. Yes, exactly. That's my point. Yeah, I think that's I think that's <laughs> smart because yeah, that way I you, agree. Yeah. yeah. You preserve the structural integrity of the other books. Okay. And um, I get more money. So that's and good. he gets <laughs> I, I hear Pete Pete has expensive hobbies. That's that single moth scotch is not cheap. Yeah, right. So we're trying he's working towards that thirty five year McAllen. So we gotta yeah, no, that's buy just, more books. Great. <laughs> on my deathbed give me the there we go just get you just get you a little two ounce pour and be like woo alright my kids be like dad you're gonna die anyway that's a waste of money why don't we just buy a car or something <laughs> <laughs> anyway oh again thank you so much for your time thanks for hanging out we appreciate it yeah I really appreciate it yeah thank you good to be with you take care thank you for listening to This Is Not Church be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice if you would like to partner with us Visit patreon.com slash thisisnotchurch, where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.